What's up, everyone? Welcome to another exciting episode of the Brown Go Green Show. Super excited to have our guest today who does incredible work in environmental journalism, storytelling, and has really been on her own journey of being able to channel environmental justice through her words and her actions and inspiration in the world. So really excited to have her on the show today and would love for you to introduce yourself. Yeah, so my name is Angelie Mercado. I'm a lifelong New Yorker and I work in environmental journalism. I'm a staff writer at Gizmodo. I write for the planet slash climate focus vertical called Earther. Amazing. And can you tell us a little bit more about your environmental journalism journey? What got you passionate about journalism as an outlet for change? Yeah, so I don't know that I ever really, from a very young age, planned to do journalism. I just know that I liked learning and I liked writing. I enjoyed science, but I don't know why I ended up having this mentality at some age where I was like, I'm maybe not smart enough for science or some of this is very complicated and I am confused. I'm very bad at math and I'm not sure why it's hard for me to learn certain things. But when I started college and started taking more writing classes and enjoyed it. And I had also been part of the school newspaper in my high school and really enjoyed it as well. And I had the opportunity to take a class in undergrad where you had like the students had to help write articles for a print publication, like a print newspaper for the South Bronx. And I grew up visiting family and family friends and stuff throughout the five boroughs. So even though I knew that there were negative stereotypes about the South Bronx, I didn't take a lot of them seriously. And so I was just very happy to go to like Mott Haven, Longwood and Hunts Point to report on these stories. And people in my life who didn't like maybe didn't grow up in New York or hadn't had friends and family in the Bronx would say like really stereotypical stuff. Like what? Or like, I remember telling someone, I was like, oh yeah, my, my, um, one of my classes means that I have to go to the South Bronx several times a month for events or for reporting and stuff. And it's, it's really interesting. I like the neighborhood. And this one guy was just like this older guy was like, Miha, get out of there. And I'm like, it's nice. I really enjoy it. I understood that certain neighborhoods, yes, do have higher rates of crime, higher rates of poverty. There are issues, but that didn't mean that it was like the crappiest place I've ever been to in my life. I genuinely like the events that I went to there. There's like cool stuff going on throughout all of New York and the South Bronx is not an exception. And I learned a lot about environmental racism and policies that have kept a lot of communities sick. Mm-hmm. And when I started to learn about like high pollution in the area, the highway that kind of divides different neighborhoods in the South Bronx and realizing that this was part of Robert Moses's legacy, learning who Robert Moses was now I have beef with him eternally. Oh, same. <laughs> like, yeah, a lot of beef with I, Robert Moses. Sure. Yeah, like I, I remember putting in a job application. I was like, hates hey, Robert Moses. And I was asked about it. Immediate <laughs> so hire. Like, immediate hire. Yeah. They were just like, what is this? <laughs> but I had to learn about the history of the South Bronx and why these issues were the way they were. I had to watch the documentary that coined the, that explained the famous term that was like the Bronx is burning. And this is back in the 70s where there were a lot of arsons throughout New York City, but especially in impoverished neighborhoods, including the South Bronx. Mm -hmm. And I began to realize that issues in the South Bronx were relevant for me in my life as someone who grew up in a working class immigrant community in Queens. 
and a lot of kids had asthma and I realized a lot of kids that I grew up around had asthma or certain respiratory issues throughout the year. From my high school in Long Island City, we could see the peaking plants from the windows of the high school. I started to realize more and more like, oh, this low-key applies to me mm-hmm. or it applies to other people that I know. And over time, I kind of got a perception of like, oh, it doesn't have to be this way. There are policies that have allowed these conditions to exist. And these are intersectional issues. It's not just, is the person poor? It's also like the history of how it got here. And it was kind of intense to realize that where you live says a lot about your health outcomes. Like you could do a lot of things right within your means and it would still not override your health outcomes because some politician several decades ago was racist or just like had a vision of New York that involved car-centric travel versus expanding public transportation. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that was very impactful to learn on the ground as a student journalist. That newspaper then became my first ever paid internship. And so I spent a summer reporting in the South Bronx and it was a lot of fun. I got to go to like salsa festivals in one of the parks Mm -hmm. there events at the Bronx Documentary Center. They have how Coney Island has like the mermaid parade. They have the fish parade really? in the South Bronx. So it's really, yeah, it's really cute. I've never heard of that. I, I remember attending and there was like all these little kids in costumes. It was adorable. Oh, so cute. I loved it. Yeah, it, it's, there was a lot of cool stuff to report on and I just got really invested in learning how to do it on the ground. I spoke to, there was at some point a distillery for rum and pitorro or like legal pitorro which is like Puerto Rican moonshine <laughs> and so I got to interview the person who made the who made like his own kind of concoctions and I, I just got to cover stories that were really fun and interesting to me and I think that from there started getting other internships and taking more writing classes and eventually went to graduate school for journalism and did community reporting for a while but I realized that I actually didn't like real estate or community reporting it burned me out very quickly. I oftentimes just felt very like, I don't care about certain parts of this as much as I wish I did. And kind of took the time to try different things and see what worked for me. And eventually, right before COVID, I was laid off from a job where I was covering banking technology specifically. And then it's Friday the 13th. I am invited to a Slack call. And then a lot of layoffs happened that day. Myself included was layoff. And Two days later, the city shuts down and we are launched into full lockdown COVID-19. And I took the time (laughs) to just like figure out what did I want to do? And I had written several freelance pieces when I was a intern at The Nation learning about fact-checking. And these stories were, I got to speak to environmental activists and student activists. And this was like in the height of the global protest in 2019. Mm -hmm. And I remembered really enjoying working on those assignments and told myself, like, let's just try environmental stuff for now. Let's, like, launch into it. What do you got to lose? You already lost your job. (laughs) So I just, like, threw myself into it and got a fellowship at Gris. Started freelancing and doing other projects like fact-checking podcast episodes and fact-checking books on the side. And uh, I just gave it a try and decided that I really liked it. And... I was able to get past a little bit of the imposter syndrome and kind of stick my hat on myself about not being smart enough to know science or environmental Mm. science. And it still sometimes exists today where I'm like, I'll read a 
I'll read a study and I'll look at the top paragraph and I'm like, I have no idea what's going on. I need to reread this three times before I really understand this. But I'm getting there and I'm learning and it has been an interesting journey so far and I have enjoyed a lot of what I've written. And that's led to me being here at Earther. So like from that story, it sounds like a lot of the reasons that drove you were very community oriented. It felt like Mm -hmm. it wasn't necessarily this scientific typical story of like, oh, the planet is warming and we need to do something about it. It sounds like it was more like you were seeing environmental injustice, communities that were impacted by pollution, were impacted by gentrification, by poor urban design and systemic policy that leaves communities the most vulnerable. And, you know, in a lot of ways, that's what got me into this work, not necessarily the scientific crunch the numbers, carbon emissions stuff, even though that also is very critical. My why was very driven by environmental justice as well. And it sounds like that was also the through line for you. Yeah, absolutely. Because I feel like the way that I learned about what was going on with climate change and pollution and stuff was very much through like, don't litter at the beach. (laughs) Polar bears are like running out of environment for them to hunt on. And those things very much concerned me. And I was always um, from a young age trying to phase out more plastic out of my Mm -hmm. life, learning, trying to learn about endangered species and caring about them. But on the ground, I had very real life examples. And as I said, I'm a lifelong New Yorker, but my family has roots in the Caribbean. My dad moved to New York from Puerto Rico. My mom moved to New York from the Dominican Republic. Mm -hmm. And so many island nations and island communities around the world are going to see the worst of climate change. A lot of places just are already and have been seeing a lot of issues with climate change for a very long time. And so it's never been like when climate change hits, it's always been, it has been happening for some time. Mm -hmm. And I also remember Hurricane Sandy and growing up with family in a hurricane prone part of the world and having experienced some of them myself because I just happened to visit family like August. And then it's like, oh, you, your flight has been delayed. There's a hurricane. (laughs) This happened more than once. And then I have to help like board a window somewhere and then just kind of sit still for a day until the rain and the wind passes. And then I saw how south of 14th street, no train was working. Mm. Buses were shut down. A friend of mine lived on the other side of Queens, like near the water the first floor of her house flooded. She was texting me photos of the of the floodwaters rising on her street. I'm practically calling her and I'm like, how can you get out? Like, what are you doing? And she's like, I can't leave. There's nowhere to go. I don't have a boat. And I'm panicking because she couldn't leave her neighborhood for multiple days. And when I finally saw her again at school, I was like practically crying. Uh. So I was like, I was so scared that something was happening to her and her family she couldn't get on a call. Her The lights were cut out, so she couldn't charge her phone, so she couldn't talk on the phone to conserve, like, her battery. Oh, my God. And then I also had to get to class and work. And so I had to walk 20 blocks to a bus and then get on that bus that was packed, take that bus to Queen Center Mall, like, around that area, and then get on a very packed F train that was going express into Manhattan and somehow figure out a way to back home in the evening after I got off like my on-campus job. Whoa. And then a friend, another friend had told me how her way to get back to the middle of Queens after class was somebody was walking around the campus being like, five bucks and I'll get a bunch of y'all to Queens. <laughs> and she was just like me, I'll sit in the trunk. 
And it was just chaos for several days while like water was being pumped out of like subway stations and like different infrastructure was being put back online. And I was, it it just kind of hits you where you're like, damn, we really aren't like, we're not ready. (laughs) We don't know what's happening. And it was very frustrating to see that. Totally. And I love that you brought up earlier that as you've gone deeper into environmental journalism, you've felt this imposter syndrome around the science, but yet you clearly have seen and experienced the impacts of climate, right? And we're Mm -hmm. learning that as much as the numbers are important, it's important to listen to scientists, we need more stories like what you just shared, right? That just makes it very clear to people that we are not ready, we need resources, and we need to hold leaders accountable for these very systemic issues that are being driven by a lack of an action by every sector, by government leaders, and we need action, right? And so I'm just curious, like, how has your approach been to connect the dots for people in your writing? I love how I love how you kind of started with like these community oriented pieces, but obviously now you're doing way bigger coverage with mm-hmm. the work that you're doing on a daily basis. And obviously you've had to most likely incorporate the science in that. Yeah. Could you just walk us through a bit of like how you wrapped your head around these just very complex topics to distill it down and make it easier for the public to understand? Yeah. I think one thing that I love doing is speaking to the scientists that have put together the press releases and the studies, particularly when the scientist is like a professor at a university, they have to explain these concepts to students who might be new to them. So they're so good for getting quotes. Mm. They're amazing to speak to. They're always so happy to get on the phone and express their work and just express their excitement for their work being released. So I like as intimidated as I feel to speak to scientists sometimes or did more so when I first began doing it more often, they're super great to speak to. I like breaking it down there are times when I'm like I don't know what this paragraph means like I straight up to people I'm like what is this (laughs) please tell me and they're very happy to be like yeah like think of it like this and this is the same concept of as that it's wonderful to get on the phone with them I also really enjoy speaking to different like watchdogs and think tanks because they're the ones usually filing like lawsuits Mm. against like government agencies or in like big leaders and industries And so it's always good to get like a lawyer or a lead counsel on the phone who can break down like these are the laws that we're calling into action or we're saying that according to XYZ law, environmental law, we maybe have a trial, we might have like cause to have a lawsuit for something. And I feel like that has made it easier for me to digest and understand when you get the expert on the phone or you get someone who's like, I'm the person who put together the press release about this. I can explain it to you step by step. And it's like, yes, please (laughs) explain the whole thing if you have time. And that has made it easier for me to understand. I also just read a lot of other people's work constantly. Like the nation has great environmental coverage, Washington Post, NPR. There are a lot of large publications that have sections dedicated to climate coverage and they have maybe bigger teams than Gizmodo does. So I do draw inspiration from their work, constantly link their work and explainers trying to find explainers online has been very helpful Hmm. but I also write explainers myself so in the process of writing them I feel like I learn a lot too break us break down the process of making an explainer I'm so curious like how do you go about that it you sometimes you just have a question and you're like I know 
a lot of you also have the same question. Like this year is a La Niña year, which is like, or wait, no, it's an El Niño year. El Niño, niña yeah, yeah. I was like, you think left at the beginning? Yeah, La Niña left after we had like a triple La Niña, and uh, both are global shifts that affect climate and weather throughout the entire planet. And so, anytime the National Association of anything climate related is like, it's going to be this the year, it's going to be that year. I want to know what does that mean for me? What does that mean for my region? What kind of weather what kind of weather are we going to get? What are the projections? Is it like almost certain that it's going to happen? Are like meteorologists saying like oh is it like maybe 60%? Like what are we looking at? And then I try to get somebody on the phone that can break it down and explain what does this mean for what region? What are the signs that we're heading in that direction and what are scientists waiting for on the lookout for when they can then say like, oh, it's probably going to happen. We're not just 60-ish percent sure. We're like, it's more than 90% sure that it could happen. And then having examples of like previous years with a similar global shift and saying like, well, this is the weather that we saw during that time. Mm. And that's why we know the same thing could happen again. Mm -hmm. I also wrote an explainer that was about like climate change and tornadoes. Mm -hmm. And there were a lot of coverage um, when there was intense number of tornadoes in like the Gulf in the center of the country where people are like, oh, is it climate change? Or I saw questions online asking, like, is this climate change? Mm -hmm. And I spoke to a researcher who was like, the tornado itself, we can't really even say it's climate change because tornadoes come and go very quickly. They're very intense, but maybe the conditions that cause them could be linked to climate change, or we have to study those to then say yes or no, Mm -hmm. is it linked to climate change? And that was helpful for me because I knew very little about tornadoes before I started doing this kind of reporting. (laughs) I only really experienced one tornado, I think, that came to New York that was like... Tornadoes in New York? There was one like a decade ago. Oh, wow. And I I just remember going outside and I'm like, there's too many branches on the ground. What just happened? What kind of storm was this? And then I see the news and they're like, that was a tornado. Right. (laughs) Like, oh, shit, we had one? I was shocked. But yeah, like there's times when... I don't have much of a context for certain types of coverage because it's the first time I'm doing an explainer. And when you get the expert on the phone, that's the best. They can explain a lot. There's also the National Weather Service. Their website has a lot of explainers as well. So if you need to find like definitions or maps of like different types of extreme weather, the National Weather Service's website is a great great resource for that. Also just like NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration's website, anything like climate.gov, heat.gov, all those hubs from the government are really, really wonderful for explainers. And there's a huge issue with misinformation online. And I know Mm -hmm. in journalism, like a lot of journalists have to compete with a lot of misinformation. I just wanted to know your views on that and how you make sure to fact check, you know, the information that you share, because obviously there's a lot of trolls on the internet that are constantly saying that environmental journalists are spreading lies and misinformation, which yes, they're just trolls. But I'm just curious, like, how do you fact check? Like, what is the value of fact checking, especially when it comes to environmental journalism? Mm -hmm. I would say I'm encouraged a lot, at least in my job to find primary sources. So I won't just say like, this bout of extreme weather is going to happen, I'll link that there was a projection from the National Weather Service specifically that said it. So having specific sources from government agencies, from meteorologists, or just any agency that has experts that can speak to that, 
is probably your best bet. Mm -hmm. So primary source, trying to go as close as you can to a source if you don't have access to the primary source. Like, is there a a publication that was the first to report it? Mm -hmm. But then you have to make it clear and link it, like first reported by, for example, the LA Times, and then you link that like Times article. And then you keep an eye on it to see if they have any updates as well. Because if something they wrote maybe needs to be corrected or updated, you can then do the same in your story. But primary sources are your best bet. And having someone on the phone, if maybe there isn't a direct source for the information, you just saw like a press release from someone, is there an expert somewhere else where you're like, oh, how accurate is this? Or how would you interpret this? And then quoting like what they got from that information. So I think it's just double checking with other people, finding the primary source. And if I don't understand something, I don't put it until I understand (laughs) it to the rest of, to the best of my ability, because it's like, I don't want to misconstrue something and then kind of misguide the reader by accident. So I just try to have it like, I go over what I wrote. I ask myself, does this make sense to me? Because I'll sometimes just be on deadline typing stuff out and then I'll read a second paragraph and I'm like that makes no sense (laughs) what did I just write and that can be really challenging in the age of social media obviously you know we're talking about more traditional journalism here but I would say in the age of social media everyone has a hot take these days and people are just really quick to put things on the internet to have an opinion rather than actually fact checking Mm-hmm. and kind of spreading misinformation because they have really strong opinions. But I also know that social media and people on certain platforms like can maybe uh, have breaking news even faster than traditional news outlets these days. What are your thoughts about that? I'm just curious, like, what do you think is like the role of social media, but also like how can people be more mindful to knowing that it might not be all the facts because it's very like emotional. It's very like bursts Mm. of emotion rather than like actually taking your time like you're saying and like checking that the information is accurate I just want your opinions on it more so yeah I mean I love using social media for reporting like I've gotten some really meaningful stories and sources because I was just scrolling on TikTok Mm. and I interviewed Isaias Hernandez a queer brown vegan and I love their work I think their work is really informative and because of social media I've been able to find sources like that who can just talk about like what is it like to be a climate-based content creator what is it like to engage with audiences on climate in an emotional way but also a scientific way so i think a lot of journalists find that they're finding really cool sources thanks to social media and able to get more quotes because someone else is posting about an issue and then we can dm them and say like would you be available to speak do you want to share your opinion on this and a lot of times people will say yes they posted about it because they care about that issue and especially climate issues. I think a lot of platforms have people who are connecting over their love for climate action and learning about climate science. My issue is, as you said, when the post is very much emotional. Yeah. And I think a phrase that I happen to hear a lot that makes me a little bit annoyed, even though I mean, I understand it can be very well-intentioned, is when people are like, mainstream media doesn't want you to know about this. And I'm like, (laughs) the New York Times, the Washington Post, the LA Times, other major publications have reported on that today. <laughs> Don't post this without checking first that they haven't written articles, like well-informed articles about that issue. And I think there was the derailment in Ohio earlier this year. And there were several days where people and news outlets were scrambling to be like, what is the accurate information? Right. 
And there were a lot of videos where people like, the mainstream media is not reporting on it. And by then I had written like multiple stories about the derailment as have many other reporters either in the region or environmental reporters around the entire Mm. country had like written something about it. So I was like, did they Google all of the links that are out there? Did they like, (laughs) I was pulling information directly from the EPA's press releases. Mm. I was pulling information from the Ohio Emergency Management Department's like press releases and tweets and like newscasts with, I think it was the state governor and other like elected officials in Ohio. So people weren't sitting around doing nothing being like, let's wait and see. They were reporting on it. Mm -hmm. There's also the fact that my now former colleague, Molly Taft, wrote this really wonderful piece where she described how some of the misinformation has a lot to do with the fact that newsrooms don't often have the resources to send their reporters to the site. And so we have to rely on government information for accuracy. We have to rely on like calling people on the ground and waiting for them to respond because people were being evacuated. They were moving their stuff around to see how they could be safe. And so sources were not responding as quickly as they could because like they have to think about their safety first, which makes sense. Mm -hmm. But not every newsroom has the same resources, capabilities, or even manpower to put on the ground so that someone can be physically sent to a site and say, yes, this is how it's happening. Let me describe it. Mm. And that is unfortunate. And I think that says a lot about like, there are different challenges from being based in other states when like a disaster happens. Mm. And a lot of the critiques of journalism, I think, can be very valid. But I think that some of them aren't always coming from people who have worked in the field. So I I think sometimes when people see how the sausage is made, they'll realize like why certain choices have been made editorially or why there aren't as many people on the ground as maybe they personally would like to see. Yeah. And I mean, I think when it comes to environmental issues and environmental justice issues, right, there is a valid criticism that maybe, you know, in the past certain issues haven't been reported to the extent that they needed to be there's this criticism of, you know, disaster capitalism where like people will profit and really like get a lot of coverage, right? And resources when a disaster strikes. But then, you know, once the news cycle ends, it's like what happens to that community mm-hmm. afterwards, right? And I think it's it's interesting because obviously like there's this argument that we need to democratize journalism. So that way people in their own community, similar to the, I hate the term citizen science, but similarly, like there needs to be these tools, right. That empower communities nowadays to be able to tell their own stories about what's going on. But at the same time, there is an art and a trade to traditional journalism that there is a skill set that needs to be cultivated in some ways to get that message out there in an, in an effective, scalable way, right? And, you mm-hmm. know, there's politics behind that on why, you know, media outlets, period, exist versus, like, you know, why lo- local news outlets don't get the same kind of, you know what I mean? You know, why yeah. a local newspaper doesn't get the same press as, like, a New York Times or whatever, right? There's reasons for that. But it's, like, at the same time, it's, like, yeah, because my next question was, like, how can we train communities to be journalists in their own areas, like to be able to like observe and report and maybe use things like social media to get their message out there while also mm-hmm. knowing it's important to not spread misinformation. I just don't know what your thoughts are on that because I think for for myself, right? I didn't go to grad school for journalism. I'm self-taught with like a lot of my journalism, mm-hmm. but you know, I've reported on 
lots of issues like on my platform, right? And I try to encourage that like other people could do the same thing if they wanted to in like their own community or what's going on and sharing that information. But at the same time, like there is something to be said on like thinking about misinformation, thinking about how to make sure like your messaging is really concise and that you're telling a good story, making sure that like you are actionable with like your calls to action, all these things. So I guess my question is like, if we would want to train people on how to become journalists like yourself, but in their own areas and wanted to just do their own neighborhood reporting, what would you recommend they consider? I think they should read the kind of stories that they would want to write and just see examples of like how things are formatted in an article. Because a lot of people, like a lot of us are taught where it's like the lead, the top of the story is where you put your most important information and then you kind of explain it from there like the first paragraph or two should give a lot of information a lot of context and then you can outline it you can just kind of like give background and I would reiterate what I said earlier about primary sources like I I encourage everyone to maybe check out uh, the National Weather Service's website like is there a topic that you're interested in or that affects your community a lot what is the government agency? What is the federal agency? What is the state agency? Do you have a city agency? And learn about where their press releases are. Uh, How do they release their information? Do they have like live conferences after a disaster, which many uh, places do. They'll have like a streamed conference that you can see on YouTube or it's on the news, but there are often many ways to have access to those live streams. So just kind of like that, I think would be a good place to start because there have been times when I've reported something because it came from an official during a live stream and someone is like, why haven't I heard of this? I'm like, well, the live stream was today. You may have missed it. And so just like learn what the appropriate agencies are and how they tend to respond to things. Because I remember reporting as well that somebody had tweeted something and they're like, you're just reporting on the tweet. I'm like, a government official tweeting is an official statement. Mm. They like someone has okayed that tweet. They can't just fire off on their accounts. Well, you know, though we have seen that in the American political cycle. Yeah, I was like, uh, I don't know if all politicians are regulated that way, but yeah. Yeah, no, like we've seen some pretty like interesting things in our time, but when agencies that are not known to just kind of like fire off whenever release something online, you can link it and that can count as a primary source because it's coming directly from the official accounts mm. of that governor or senator or whoever official or official agency. Yeah. And so like, just do they have a Facebook page? Do they have a Twitter page? Do they have like any other sort of like social media account that you can look to is always very important to find as well, because for a lot of groups, a lot of agencies, someone's reading off and okaying that press release. Someone's reading off on and okaying that post. Yeah. They, they want to make sure that they're not putting something out there that could have them accused of something else or like could lead to a lawsuit. So there's more than one person putting their eyes on anything that is posted online. So that's why it counts as a primary source. Yeah. And what, what do you feel are the types of stories that you wish you saw more of reported on when it comes to the environmental journalism world. I'm just curious. I I think I've started to see more and more of the kind of stories that I'd like to read. There are a lot of really wonderful stories on the ground that 
we look at the people who have been affected mm. by certain issues along with using their story to explain the policy that got them there. Mm. And I, it's more of, I'd like to do more of that reporting and I've seen, I've started to see it more and more, but that takes time and resources and not every newsroom has the time and resources. So whenever I do see a story like that, I'm really excited to read it because I know the work that it was behind. That's like it. an example of one that was like a good case study or like a story that you feel really like gripped you. I helped fact check a story for Grist a few years ago. Like I was a freelance fact checker behind it. And it looked at the history of industrialization in a community in California and how there's a lot of lead in the soil there and how a lot of people there happen to be like predominantly like Latin American and how different communities of color are often more exposed to lead and other environmental toxins. Mm. And so I saw how this reporter had gone to like the public library. It takes like photos of archives, how they looked at um, community planning from a few decades back and how zoning had changed to allow more industrial buildings to be there, which then further exposed people to environmental pollutants. Mm. And I was like, did this take you months to write? And they were like, yeah. <laughs> just read on Charlie. Like, yeah, this is like months of my life. And it, it was just like they pulled excerpts from books. They had spoken to a historian. They had spoken to a family that lived there for a long time, generationally. Mm. And it, it was just really, really cool to see how they wove the narrative together. And it was a very long story. It was like a pretty long article, which is why it needed an extra fact checker to come on and help just to make sure that everything was accurate. And yeah, like for longer stories that involve people and the history of how those people got screwed over by something, <laughs> it's it's months of labor. Yeah. It's month, months of work on and off. And it produces one story, but there's so much effort behind that. Mm. And along with that... Is that something that you would want to aspire towards long term? Like what what are what's the future for your journalism career? Like where do you want to take it? Like as you've been learning through, you know, your work currently, what's next for you? What are you feeling in the next couple of years? You know, obviously you've been in a whirlwind of just getting your mm -hmm. your footing as an environmental journalist in many different waves and seasons and it seems like now you're in a bit more of a a space of like grounding and then growth so what what is that growth mm -hmm. leading towards I do want to write like longer stories because right now particularly like in a digital space I can write both long and shorter stories but I have to write I have to post something almost every day I have to make sure that different things are being worked on and updated constantly and so I would like to find myself in a place where I can write these longer stories when I can do deeper dives on explainers and speak to more people on the ground mm. And that is harder to do, but I feel like it's really satisfying work. And if I am able to stay in this field, because journalism is very precarious, as we've seen, it's it's hot labor summer as of this recording. And a lot of newsrooms have unionized, have pushed to unionize, or have released statements through union reps over the many challenges that reporters find themselves as workers, because we are workers. This is labor. And depending on where you work, you may or may not see a livable wage, even mm. if you're doing work or working long hours. Uh, I have had colleagues and friends that work full time in New York City and were making less than $40,000 a year. There are what? Yeah, like if if you look up some of the salaries in what? the field, 
they're not always great. And it's, it's kind of like the shock when people have seen like sag and like right. the writers, like Hollywood writers. And they're like, wait, so none of you are rich. <laughs> and then you, and then that's why I also love seeing phrases like East coast media elites. And I'm like, that is a small handful of people. The rest of us shop at Dollar Tree. <laughs> That's a word. No, it's true. It, yeah. Yeah, it can be precarious. But right now where I am in my life, I think the work is worth it. And there are ways that I've seen people do media adjacent work where maybe they work with nonprofits on storytelling mm. or there's different ways to apply these skills and this enthusiasm for science and for climate where people are still doing research or they're still writing or still producing content but to a different capacity. But it's definitely really exciting to be in this space. And it's something that a few years ago, if you had told me that I would be writing about climate full time, I wouldn't have believed you. (laughs) Like I, to this day, I'm just like, oh, like I wrote that like with my brain. And it's hard to believe that I've been able to do this because I just, you know, I didn't know that it would be possible. I, it's not something that I, conceived of at any point until this started to happen then I was like oh like it might become possible one day and then one day happened and it was like oh I'm here now and it's weird to think about that to whenever someone's like oh what do you think about this climate thing I'm like why are they asking me <laughs> I remember like oh yes I actually did write about that this week so that's why they're asking me yeah I mean I just wanted to tap a little bit into that imposter syndrome because you've been featured in New York Times, Teen Vogue, Vogue, like all these big things. And you're over here saying you have imposter syndrome. And I really, as part of the Brown Girl Green show, we got to talk about being brown girls and the struggle of imposter syndrome and that even though you can have all these accolades and that you were a square peg in a circular hole or whatever you want to call it, but you made it work, right? We found our ways to carve out spaces and to raise our voices in places that maybe weren't designed for us to thrive, right? And you are a perfect case study of that. I love meeting people like you because, you know, it shows that we're out here doing the thing, right? But I want to talk a little bit more about, as a woman of color, like, how did you overcome that your words meant something? How did you overcome, like, these feelings of, you know, I am smart, I am capable, like, I'm just as good as any of these journalists that maybe have X, Y, and Z expertise over me. Like, like, what was your process and what do you continue to do to hype yourself up to really like, you know that you are that girl? I still don't often know that I am that girl. Sometimes I'm like, who is that girl? We don't know. <laughs> like, but, but I, I try. That's real, I that's real. To, I feel I that. try my best. I I think I also point out to people like that there is always some sort of privilege behind everyone because I was able to graduate school without student debt. Mm -hmm. Part of that was working multiple jobs. And then part of that was I applied to almost every scholarship I got my hands on. Mm -hmm. And I even just knew what I grew up around a lot of other kids from similar backgrounds who have immigrant parents, but Some of them that graduated with me didn't even know what scholarships were, did not have a vocabulary for looking for them, whereas I did because Mm. my parents were the ones who told me, like, look up scholarships. And so I was Googling, like, what is a scholarship? (laughs) (laughs) And found scholarships, told a guidance counselor at school, like, well, how do I apply for scholarships? And they explained to me. But I asked the question first, and that made it so that I was able to graduate 
from two degrees without debt. Mm. I was also able to live with my family because my home base has always been New York City. Mm. And that's just like a birth lottery. (laughs) Other people have to pay money to move to where there are universities and they have to live, like they have to leave their hometowns that may not have as much access to different types of higher education. Mm -hmm. So that that's just luck. Some of it is genuinely luck and just where you happen to be born. Mm. And other parts of it is I got lucky that some of the scholarships I applied to said, yes, here is some money. I got lucky that the first time I filed on FAFSA, I didn't mess it up (laughs) because I could have easily messed it up. (laughs) And I was, you know, like some of it is luck, some of it is your hard work paying off. And so I think whenever someone tells me they're like, oh, how do I do it exactly like you? I don't think you can do it exactly like anyone. Mm -hmm. I think you have to look at your personal situation and make a choice of like, what works for me? What doesn't work for me? Mm -hmm. And another aspect of that is also just, I'm very lucky that people even gave me a chance. Like who the hell was I to be like, I'll write, I'll pitch this climate story when I barely knew what the hell I was doing. And then there have been stories that I've handed in where the editor is like, we're going to completely redo this. I, I like your draft, but I actually wanted this other thing. So then I had to write a story all over again. And this is like earlier in the climate rating journey where I was just like, I don't have a context for any of this. So I'm just going to read 10 different stories that describe what they want and then I'll get the gist of it. Mm. But it, it's, it is a lot of effort up front and it is also a lot of like I'm very lucky this person took a chance on me I'm very lucky this editor decided to give me another chance I'm very lucky that I found the right email because when I first started freelancing and writing I was finding the emails on the websites that were like info at and then (laughs) publication.com or net and that's the slush pile yeah the slush pile almost never gets answered. I've been very fortunate. A handful of times I have broken through the slush pile and that I was like, I, I must have some lucky star shone down, shone down on me for like five minutes. And the editor was like, let me actually check this email. And then I learned the hard way. Like I have to find people's names. I have to find their actual emails and hit them up directly to actually get a chance. But that first year was rough. <laughs> I was I was doing a lot of different side hustles. Still sometimes do because it, it would be nice to like just have emergency savings and stuff. But <laughs> those first few years, there are people who are like, oh, I feel like I'm failing. I'm like, no, you're actually doing it. Like you're, yeah. you just have to find some strategy and technique. But the first few years of this is hard. And yeah. I will always, always tell people if they feel like certain things are not clicking right away like that that was definitely the case for me that feels very normal yeah no same I think I was like why is this so hard and a lot of it comes down to the fact that we didn't have like you know those networks right away that was like oh I'm gonna introduce you to like my friend and my friend or my dad's friend you know who owns this thing we didn't have that you know what I mean and so it's like one of those things where it's like when you're out there trying to go on your own journey like I think, yes, I think luck and being in the right place at the right time definitely plays a huge, huge role. But at the same time, like you had to do a lot of things to position yourself right for that moment, though, too. Right. Where it's like, like as much as it's luck, I just want to challenge you on that where I'm like, I also think like you put yourself in the right position. Right. Because you could be right place, right time, but you your mindset might not be there. Right. So at the same time, you did have this like vigor to be like. I don't care. I'm just going to do it. Who knows? Right? Like that's a mindset. So I think that's the through line from what I'm hearing from you is like, 
do it, as they say, do it scared, do it nauseous, do it weak, do it cowardly, mm -hmm. do it messy, right? Because you yeah. never know, you, you increase your chances and your probability that you'll be in the right place at the right time if you position yourself. And yes, there's a whole spectrum of privilege. Even people who will listen to this podcast have their own spectrum of privilege, right? But those of yeah. you who are listening, I hope that what you're gaining out of it, and if you're also seeking to get some answers on what is the path forward, if you're feeling confused, and maybe you also want to be a storyteller again to journalism, all these things, I think the through line is hone in on your craft, hone in on your skill set, be very deliberate and persistent. And maybe, you know, with a little bit of luck and right place, right time, you know, you're going to nail it down, right? And it's it's never... What I've learned as I get older, it's never what you think it's going to look like mm -hmm. when you aspire towards something or you're trying to work towards something. You you just have to create the right conditions to increase the likelihood that, that something good's going to come out of it, right? And I think that your story is an exact example of that. Yeah, like it, it definitely is like I worked at it and I tried, I took on different internships so I can see what I liked and didn't like and what I wanted to do in the field. So I would encourage people to try different things, set yourself up for different opportunities. I also, fun fact, there's one internship I only got because I won an award and I had to give a speech for a journalism award when I was an undergrad. And it was the Aronson Award for Social Justice Journalism. And it was due to a story that I wrote in the South Bronx about bad housing conditions. And I applied to that award the last possible day because I had forgotten. And then my professor reminded me. He's like, oh, yeah, did you apply? And I was just like, yeah. And so I went home and I applied last minute. I barely made the deadline. And then I won. And then I had to give a speech. I got a little plaque. Got to go to this like cool award ceremony with other people. And I had applied to an internship at Curb New York. And one of the people got back to me, one of the editors, and they were like, hey, sorry, you don't have like enough experience in XYZ thing. So maybe next year, if you get experience in this, because we do like your resume. And that same day, someone else from the publication hits me up and they're like, I heard your acceptance speech. Come in for an interview at this hour. And then I got the internship. And so sometimes doing things last minute or doing things like maybe you don't think you're going to win an award, just apply. You don't think you're going to get a job, just apply. Mm -hmm. Even if you're told no, at least like you know how to apply now and that's experience <laughs> that you get and then you apply better yes. next time or you're more aware of that job, you're more aware of that award and there's always going to be another round of applications to come. Oh, I love that. I love that so much. And, you know, to, to wrap up this episode, what is your advice for budding environmental storytellers? What do you want to, what words of wisdom do you want to impart on them today? Take care of your mental health. <laughs> Take care of your emotional health. Like I spoke to some students earlier this year and they're like, what should we do to mentally prepare ourselves for some of the ways that journalism can be kind of tough or different creative careers or climate related yeah. careers can be tough. And I'm like, go to therapy or find a hobby that is not related to your screen. Like, Dang. take care of yourself because some of these stories, when I'm talking to people that have experienced hardship yeah. and then following up with them and making sure people are okay, you're kind of hearing a lot of difficult situations. You're being exposed to difficult situations. I'm also affected personally by some of the climate disasters that I have to report on. Like, when something happens in the Caribbean, 
and all the power is knocked out. I can't get a hold of a lot of my family for mm. over a week. It's scary. It's stressful. And I deserve to have space where I can speak to a professional. And I'm very grateful and lucky to be in a position where I can afford to do so because there were several years at the beginning of my career where I did not, I could not afford help. Yeah. And things were definitely messier and harder to get through life when you don't have access to professional help. Yeah. So in any capacity that someone can afford to do so, like make sure that you take care of you. And a few years ago when I was just freelancing still, an editor at a publication we're just emailing back and forth. And she's like, well, your health is more important than journalism. And at the time I was like, no, it's not. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> I, was, I was just like, I need to get a job by any means necessary, even if it wrecks me. Me oh. now, I was just like, I will not wreck myself for a job anymore. Oh, the juice is not worth the squeeze in some situations. And like you have value as a person outside of your work. Because for a long time, I put too much of my value on the byline did a lot of people tweet it did a lot of people see it did a lot of people talk to me about it what the editors say that they like the first draft even though the first draft isn't ever the best draft it, it was just like too much of my validation was on my work and now I no longer like I refrain from saying too often that I am a journalist I more often say I work in journalism I work as a journalist oh that's a good I like that yeah, I, I am, as a person, someone who is interested in writing and climate and storytelling, and that is a part of my personality and who I am, but my job is not always who I am, and if this career ends, I'm always going to be telling stories. I'm always going to be interested in science and climate, but I accept that that can change. I accept that what that looks like or what it means to me can change over time, mm -hmm. and while still remaining really important to me, and so I tell anyone getting into anything creative or anything that could take a lot of stress in the beginning. While you're taking that on, find ways to take care of yourself. Find ways to engage with people who are gonna get you away from your laptop. <laughs> take care of your physical me. health, go for a walk, yeah. stretch. <laughs> like, be a person, sleep. be a human. Yeah. Yeah. Drink some water, do stuff that makes you happy. Even when it seems like, how can I be happy? This huge hurricane just happened. Like you still deserve to have a mental break for a little bit. Yeah. And also just networking. Don't force yourself to be on platforms that you hate. Like maybe if you don't like Twitter, don't force yourself to tweet. Maybe post on LinkedIn, maybe post on TikTok. But like yeah. find stuff that works for you and go from there. Don't force yourself to do all the things you hate <laughs> if you really don't have to do them. <laughs> like I used to do transcription gigs and I started to hate them because they're very tedious. And now I'm like, I'm never doing a, trans a transcription gig ever again. <laughs> refuse to do it. Yeah. But just, yeah, like, it's okay to also change your mind. I started out thinking that I was going to work at places like the New York Daily News and have completely pivoted from, like, only New York City community reporting. Now I do very national reporting about climate. And your mind can change. I've, start, I've been at school with people who were dead set on, like, I'm going to be a journalist forever, and now they no longer work in journalism but they still use all the skills that they learned and have become very successful in other things. Um, so yeah, you can, you can grow, you can change in this space and you can always change your mind about the space if maybe you decide to. And there, there's always room for growth no matter what you decide to do at the starting line. 100%. And, you know, this is not a shameless, but yet shameless plug for Green Jobs Board. And, mm -hmm. you know, I think... 
I always say to people, I wish Green Jobs Board existed when I graduated university, but we do have a lot of communications and media and storytelling jobs on there currently. Highly recommend mm-hmm. people check out the wide array of what, you know, getting into storytelling can look like if that interests you. And no matter what starting point you're at, I think getting into communications and media and climate, there's still so many exciting opportunities. And I think it's just the beginning of this field expanding and growing. And I think, you know, hearing the truth of both the the good and the bad of it and the beauty of journalism uh, from you, I think will definitely inspire many listeners to maybe explore what jobs and opportunities there are. So check out Green Jobs Board for more of those opportunities. So To finish this off, I would love if you could just share ways people can stay in touch with you, just to plug, you know, where they can find your writings and yeah, just any other resources you would like to recommend Mm -hmm. at the end of the episode. Yeah, I I think I'm on like almost every major (laughs) platform as just my government name. Oftentimes the account will say something like supermarket because my last name just means market in Spanish. <laughs> but like I'm on Instagram as literally Angelie Mercado, Twitter Angelie Mercado, and on TikTok as well as Angelie Mercado. But I think if you look up El Supermarket or something, <laughs> I'll be Love there. it. Love it. Um... And I would encourage people to, as I said, if there's something you aspire to write, read the things you aspire to write beautiful well thank you so much for joining us on today's episode we're so excited we'll be sharing some of her writings and links to some of her stories in the show notes and for people listening this was the brown girl green podcast i'm your host christy drutman where i interview environmental leaders and advocates about the importance of diversity and inclusion as well as creative solutions to the climate crisis make sure that you subscribe to the brown girl green podcast wherever you listen to your shows the brown girl green youtube channel and check out the new brown girl green instagram podcast page at brown girl green podcast catch you on the next episode thanks everyone Thank you.